and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an analysis of a feedback loop between chaos in the markets and chaos in the real world as conflicts trigger price shocks, and those high prices spark more conflicts, causing prices to spike again. With the war in Ukraine causing global turmoil with commodity prices, we will assess how these conflicts, whether realised or anticipated in the future, will raise prices as traders factor in the risk premium. And, in turn, those high prices will fuel the very conflicts the premium is supposed to hedge against. Joining us is Rupert Russell, a writer and filmmaker who has filmed in 20 countries and has made two award-winning documentaries. His first feature documentary, Freedom for the Wolf, tells the story of the global crisis of democracy from the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong to the failure of the Arab Spring in Tunisia to the rise of Donald Trump in America. He's the author of the new book just out, Price Wars, How the Commodities Markets Made Our Chaotic World. And we will discuss his article at The Guardian, Unless We Act, Escalating Commodity Prices Will Cause a Decade of Global Turmoil. Then we'll examine how the Ukraine crisis has disturbing echoes of the 1930s and the extent to which Putin could be fairly described as a fascist, given the irony he is supposedly denazifying Ukraine, while in Ukraine the pejorative name for Russia is Russia, and now, as their country is being destroyed, the Ukrainians refer to Putin's Russians as Rashists. Joining us is Christina Floria, a professor of history at Cornell University who teaches courses on East European and Soviet history, World War II and interwar Europe. Her work examines the relationship between nationalism and empire, the importance of imperial legacies in modern European history, and the centrality of imperial competition to East European politics and societies. She's the author of Crossroads of Empire, Revolutions and Encounters at the Frontiers of Europe, and we will discuss her article at CNN, Putin Knows That Controlling History is the Key to Total Power. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now from the UK is, is Rupert Russell, a writer and filmmaker who has filmed in 20 countries and made two award-winning documentaries. His first feature documentary, Freedom for the Wolf, tells the story of the global crisis of democracy from the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong to the failure of the Arab Spring in Tunisia to the rise of Donald Trump in America. He's the author of the new book, Just Out, Price Wars, How the Commodities Markets Made Our Chaotic World, and he has an article at The Guardian, Unless We Act, Escalating Commodity Prices Will Cause a Decade of Global Turmoil. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rupert Russell. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And on Thursday, the news broke that the U.S. economy shrank over the first quarter of the year. And of course, that's going to be a blow to the Democrats in the 2022 midterms in November. The GDP of the country's rate uh, between January and March fell to 1.4, which was a huge reversal from the 6.9 GDP growth that the U.S. recorded in the final quarter of 2021. In this country, the two factors that are hurting Biden the most and the Democrats the most are what's causing inflation, that is the price of oil and the price of food, in particular beef, pork and chicken. So we know that the meat packers are making a fortune. Their companies, are, there's only three or four of them, one's controlled by the Chinese, one by the Brazilian company, the other two are American, and they're making record profits but farmers are getting screwed for the price of their pork, beef, and chicken. 
so there's a disconnect there and then the price of gas it's obviously high and Exxon posted record profits on Friday so what explains this disconnect why are consumers getting screwed and traders and middlemen are making out like bandits that's a great question I think most of the evidence uh, at the moment is pointing I think to kind of two main factors one is as you already mentioned you've got oligopolistic uh, control of many of these industries um, it can be shipping it can be uh, meatpacking it can be as you say various different middlemen this gives just a handful of players um, enormous price setting power now normally what would happen in kind of the sort of pre-COVID before times was, uh, you know, prices are also kind of anchored in people's everyday expectations of them, right? So consumers regularly go to the supermarket, they know more or less how much a pound of beef or a pound of chicken um, should cost, and you know, should prices deviate, they will notice and they will, you know, look for the uh, cheaper option and they will also just, just not buy it. But I think what's happened now with this with we're in this new environment where there's a war there's headlines about an energy crisis there's headlines about uh supply chain disruption you're seeing lots of um what's it called higher signs around the united states people looking for work right we're in kind of what's the word i'm looking for we're, look, we're in sort of like uh disordered times right and so those expectations of how much things should cost become unanchored right so people don't have as such a firmer sense of how much things should cost. And that basically creates a climate of uncertainty. And that climate of uncertainty is opportunity to these handful of players in these different markets who have price setting powers. And so you get a kind of perfect storm of, on the one hand, a handful of players who can control the market. And on the other hand, a kind of unanchoring of consumer expectations, which means that consumers are not likely to punish those who raise prices. Well, but you write about this kind of feedback loop, this pernicious feedback loop. And we have, of course, the Ukraine conflict has really been devastating, clearly for the Ukrainians. But it's also having political ramifications here as well as we're talking about, particularly the rise in the, in the price of gas at the pump here uh, and the pain that consumers are feeling and how that's translating into political discomfort for the, the Democrats. You argue that these conflicts, whether realized or anticipated in the future, will raise prices as traders factor in the risk premium. And in turn, those high prices will fuel the very conflicts the premium is supposed to hedge against. So that's the trap we're in, is it not? Absolutely. So the middlemen you mentioned earlier, like meat packers and so forth, or oil companies, they are precisely that. They're middlemen. And on the energy or kind of more or less commodity front, um, these prices are set globally, right? So these middlemen are kind of downstream from global prices being set at, you know, exchanges such as the famous Chicago Exchange. There's another big one in Atlanta, the London Metalists Exchange also been in, in the head headline. And again, these exchanges are dominated by a relatively small number of players, right? These are kind of major hedge funds, major uh, commodity traders who are basically essentially betting on the future price of things, right? It's literally a futures contract. Now, even, you know, the market's most stalwart defenders will say that the feedback loop you just described, which I write in my book, is rational, right? So if you have a conflict, right, and there's anticipated disruption to supply, it could be supply of food, it could be supply of oil or gas, you want the prices to go up, right? And that will be traders essentially pushing up the futures prices. And that they would argue is is a good thing, right? Because that's sending a signal to other suppliers. They need to sort of pump more oil. It's telling consumers you've got to demand less because there's some chaos in one part of the world. The problem is, is that this ends up becoming a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because once you start, say you're Putin, it could also be Saudi Arabia or another petro state. Once you start saber rattling, right? Quite literally putting troops on borders, maybe funding you know, militias in a foreign country, it could be an all out invasion. That actually creates risk in the market, which increases prices, but that also rewards these 
rewards these uh, petro politicians for their bad behavior. And that's precisely what we've seen um, in in Ukraine, whereby gas prices have absolutely skyrocketed this year, giving you know the Kremlin around a billion dollar windfall a day. Is it rational? Is it not rational? Who knows? The point is, is that the markets are functioning as an as an engine of chaos. They're taking chaos in the real world and they're bringing chaos in the markets. Some of that chaos lands in the United States and Europe with with inflation, but it also feeds back into that very conflict as the Kremlin gets a windfall for its oil and natural gas deliveries. And Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, responsible for the murder and dismemberment of uh, the Washington Post journalist, he, of course, is riding high. He's so arrogant now that he won't even take phone calls from uh, President Biden. Yes, that's right. I mean, political scientists and economists have long identified this problem. They call it the resource curse, right? So these petro politicians, um, they're not very responsive to their own people because they've got a nice, easy source of money in the form of oil wells that are pretty easy to manage. It's very easy to pump the oil out and sell it. You don't need a middle class. You don't need expertise. You don't need an intelligentsia. And the people who kind of tend to rise the top of these petro states tend to kind of be gangsters or gangster-like, right? It's like getting to the top of the kind of mafia hierarchy and enjoying all the spoils. Now, that's a kind of baseline, but definitely when commodity prices are high, you see uh, much more brazen uh, behavior. Um, it could be an invasion, as you've seen with Russia. It could be, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia doubling down on its proxy war, rather, not proxy war, sorry, it's 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 actual in intervention in, uh, in Yemen. And again, yes, telling other players of the international community um, that they're going to have to play by their rules because they essentially have a commodity that the rest of the world desperately needs. And the United States has long found that it has very, very few tools to threaten Saudi Arabia and other oil exporters. This was a problem that Henry Kissinger faced in the 1970s. And his sort of great way of eventually resolving it by the early 1980s was simply to sell Saudi Arabia um, tons of U.S. weaponry and U.S. Tre treasuries. And again, I'm speaking with Rupert Russell, who's a writer and filmmaker who's filmed in 20 countries and made two award-winning documentaries. His first feature documentary, Freedom for the Wolf, tells the story of the global crisis of democracy from the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong to the failure of the Arab Spring in Tunisia to the rise of Donald Trump in America. He's the author of the new book, Just Out, Price Wars, How the Commodities Markets Made Our Chaotic World, and he has an article of The Guardian, unless we act, escalating commodity prices will cause a decade of global turmoil. Well, let's talk about that history of this feedback loop between chaos in the markets and chaos in the real world, as you've uh, written about in your piece in The Guardian, where conflicts triggered price shocks and those high prices sparked more conflicts, causing prices to spike again and, and so on. Mm -hmm. you're, you're mentioning the 1973 Arab-Israeli a war that when the, the OPEC cartel formed and the oil weapon started to hit the international economy and, of course, inflation surged, unemployment soared, and stock markets suffered their biggest crash since 1929. In fact, <laughs> in 1975, Kissinger actually was floating the idea of uh, occupying the oil fields in Saudi Arabia. And uh, I talked to the ambassador of, U.S. ambassador to uh, Saudi Arabia at the time, who was there in 1975, and the Saudis were saying, well, where's this talk about invading and capturing our oil fields coming from? And the ambassador had to admit that it's actually coming from his boss, the Secretary of State. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that, obviously, that solution was not exercised, but that's just one of, of a series, right, of these feedback loops uh, that you've mentioned in your article there's also more recently in 2010, you had all of the wildfires across Russia. And then in spite of the fact that American farms had a bumper crop that year, the traders still created panic in the market. And this ultimately uh, triggered the Arab Spring. And then in 2015, that in a turn, the Arab Spring roiling in the Middle East 
created the refugee crisis that then spread into Europe and, of course, led to the right-wing populist uprisings and insurgencies with the UK's Brexit and over here in the United States with Trump. So these patterns are, are pretty clearly identified, are they not? Absolutely. I think we have two um, contemporary case studies, the 1970s and the 2010s. Both were decades of chaos. And I, what I was trying to warn in that Guardian piece was that, you know, as much as the headlines are sort of flashing now, um, this, there's no reason to believe if we look to these two previous episodes of history that these are going to stop anytime soon, right? Because this feedback loop essentially um, powers, if you like, an avalanche or a, or a butterfly effect. You can kind of pick your metaphor. The 1970s, the way it played out in each decade is slightly different. And I think what's interesting now is it's almost like a kind of Frankenstein monster of both of them, which is what sort of worries me the most. Um, the 2010s, as you said, you have this food price spike in 2010. This triggers the Arab Spring. That triggers civil wars with a global refugee crisis. Those civil wars also, in turn, by the way, help inflate the oil bubble from 2011 to 2014. That's what gives uh, the Kremlin and Saudi Arabia a huge windfall of cash. So by 2014, they both feel emboldened and rich enough to go after Yemen and uh, Ukraine, um, respectively. In the 1970s, the high oil prices were also tied, I think the way in which there was the first shock of like a global bout of inflation, a recession, the rise of stagflation, this decimated progressive politics um, across the West and through, you know, the Labour Party in, in the UK becoming very unpopular, Jimmy Carter becoming very unpopular, Nixon as well, by the way, but it had knock-on effects. and. That was through the third world debt crisis, because during this period of high oil prices, countries in Latin America, Africa, Asia, especially those that import oil, um, borrowed a lot of money to pay for those high oil prices. And you have to buy, borrow the money in dollars. And so they went to Wall Street and Citibank um, in particular. And then when Paul Volcker raised interest rates 20% in 1979, that's then what triggered the third world debt crisis. And the IMF then moves into these countries and starts to impose these so-called structural adjustment pro pro programs. And uh, the record of those is pretty dismal. A part of those programs was cutting food and fuel, fuel subsidies. And so you had dozens and dozens of riots and revolutions sort of triggered by this debt crisis and the austerity that engendered. We're seeing this in, in Sri Lanka right now. We're seeing that they're suffering from a commodity price shock. They're having to borrow a lot of money. In fact, I think they've just defaulted on their on their loans. And so it's so we're seeing, if you like, the worst parts of the 1970s and the 2010s. Of course, you're also looking at a global food crisis as well right, right now. And so what you're seeing is sort of debt crises, food crises, energy crises, inflation crises, all being stacked on top of one another. And then you then think down the line, it could be six months, it could be a year, you could be seeing civil wars, riots, revolutions, another version of the global refugee crisis. And of course, it's already happening in Ukraine. I think four million have left now, if, I'm, if, that's, if that's correct. So what worries me is that we're seeing the worst of both of these examples and the speed at which this is happening is absolutely breakneck. You know, my book really covers a 10, a 10 year period and we've sort of seen as much happen in 10 weeks. And of course, the situation in Ukraine will impact and it's already impacting. I mean, first of all, it's effectively landlocked. I mean, they've lost access to the Sea of Azov. Uh, and that's what the Battle of Mariupol is largely about. And then the, the Russians' uh, Navy is blockading the coast uh, of the Black Sea, so they can't import or export. They're not planting crops, right? So the enormous amount of wheat is going to be lost from the, the world market, and that's going to impact a lot of countries. Uh, sunflower oil apparently is a hugely important product. And the precursors for fertilizers are also being impacted in Ukraine. So that's going to have a massive ripple effect, just the lack of fertilizers in the third world, uh, which they depend upon enormously for their crops. So there's all kinds of chain reactions going on that are just haven't really come fully into play yet, right? Absolutely. I think, though, there's different things happening simultaneously. So 
just on the food issue, I'll just take fertilizers out for a second, but just on the food issue, you have kind of two things. So on the first is you have the price reactions are basically instantaneous, right? So a headline comes out, uh, traders, they could be human, they could be algorithms, they're going to react to the news of a tightening of global uh, wheat supply in particular, and that will be factored into futures prices pretty much immediately, right? And that is essentially a shockwave that is sent across the world at the speed of light. Um, because what are called spot markets, that is, if you like, uh, the markets that people are actually trading the physical goods are very much taking their cues from the futures market. So the futures markets, this kind of financial, it's a derivative contract, but it has um, outsized impact in terms of local markets everywhere all over the world. And that can set um, into motion, by the way, local speculative bubbles, right? So you have, you have this global spe speculation that's happening. We don't know how much we will or won't be lost by by the way, necessarily. The market's estimating it's going to be a lot. When you're on the ground, what that means, if you're, say, in Cairo or you're in uh, Beirut and you see these high prices and you work in this business, it, it's, a, it's also a signal to hoard, right? It's basically saying the price of this commodity is going up. So if you've got it, you want to store it. And that, of course, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy on the ground as well. Now, all of these mechanics happen, by, by, by the way, before any actual physical shortage of food occurs. This is all about anticipation. And unfortunately, the way in which markets work with self-fulfilling prophecies, anticipation can actually create um, as much of a crisis as there not being enough food. And I think that's exactly what we saw in 2008 and 2010. It was the anticipation of the crisis that made the crisis. Both of those years, 2008 and 2010, saw more food produced than any other in history. Now, you're right, there is going to be an, a, a physical crunch. We don't know how big it's going to be. Ukraine and Russia together is around 25% of global wheat exports, but it's only around 0.9% of global wheat production. So even imagine that none of that wheat was harvested in those countries um, and none of it went to their local populations, we would have to find around 1% to sort of plug the gap. Now, fortunately, the US and China, um, and to a lesser extent, Europe have enormous reserves of wheat, um, which could, of course, be shipped to uh, parts of the world that need it. We're talking Bangladesh, Lebanon, Yemen, Egypt. The US, by, by, by the way, used to do this as a matter of policy. It was part of their Cold War strategy to kind of win over the non-aligned countries and during the 1973 war, uh, Kissinger kept threatening to cut it off to the Arab states. And again, in 1979, in fact, there was some folk song about food for oil, about how they should starve out the Middle East to lower the oil price. Um, so this kind of oil subsidy pop 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 politics is actually quite old, but it's something which we could bring back. And so if I've got an optimistic message, it's to say, the markets are reacting the way they are, but that doesn't mean that necessarily food doesn't need to get to these places. The shortfall, I believe, is actually relatively small and a kind of it would be in the US's geopolitical interest to make sure some of their reserves get to these vulnerable places. And what about the shortage of potash and precursors for uh, fertilizer? That's going to have an impact, isn't it? I think it will, but I think that the the way in which that's going to play out, I think, is is a lot less certain. We're also looking at other commodities such as cooking oil. Um, to be honest, the major uh, food producers in the world are Russia and the US and you know, parts of South America like Brazil. I don't think there's there's much worry, for example, of the US of running out of a fertilizer necessarily. I think what what that is more likely to do is to create, if you like, uh, local crises in domestic production. And what that could do is cause local commodity prices um, to spike. So again, these are the kind of second or kind of third order effects that I'm I'm so worried about. It's sort of like this avalanche effect. And we don't always necessarily anticipate it, but we definitely know that downstream there's a lot of disruption to come. And we're continuing the conversation with Rupert Russell, who's a writer and filmmaker who has filmed in 20 countries and made two award-winning documentaries. His first feature documentary, Freedom for the Wolf, tells the story of the global crisis of democracy from the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong to the failure of the Arab Spring in Tunisia to the rise of Donald Trump in America. He's the author of the new book, Just Out, Price Wars, How the Commodities Markets Made Our Chaotic World, 
And he has an article in The Guardian, unless we act, escalating commodity prices will cause a decade of global turmoil. But Rupert Russell, you just mentioned the algorithms used by these oil traders and commodities traders. Artificial intelligence is a big part of their operations. They do massive numbers of micro-trading, which has the effect of just running up the price just through the sheer volume of of activity. And if you look at the oil situation now, there's no shortage of oil in the world, is there? But the prices just go on up unabated. And the Commodity Future Trading Commission um, is moribund uh, under Trump. It was crippled here in the United States. And Biden has not appointed enough new members to make a difference to rein it in. Algos are sort of a bit of a black box. It's very, I think, that's one of the strangest things about when you think about the commodity markets is these are the ways in which we, the people of the world have decided, um, not the people really asked, but, you know, collectively you've kind of decided this is how we're going to organize the distribution of food and fuel. Um, and it's bizarre that nobody can actually tell you how, how, how it works because these algos are proprietary. However, we do know that, for example, they trade on headlines, they trade on satellite data, they trade on what they think the other algos are going to trade on. When I interviewed commodity traders for the book who work in this space, they see this really as just a volatility machine. I write about an event in 2014 when ISIS crossed the border into Iraq and was going for a oil refinery in uh, um in, in northern Iraq. And this was headline news that oil prices spiked $5 over a week. And that was considered a huge price shock. Uh, and it was also considered, by the way, from a lot of the traders who I interviewed, an overreaction as well for many reasons. Now we're seeing daily changes of $30 a barrel, right? The volatility is just on a completely different order. Um, for a reference point, the Iraq war in 2003, this is before um, the commodity markets became really dominated by hedge funds and these financial speculators intended to be, uh, and were in fact dominated by traders of actual physical barrels of oil. The Iraq war didn't actually cause oil prices to spike, right? This kind of volatility that we're seeing is incredibly a very, very recent phenomenon, but a bit like a, you know, a frog in a pot of boiling water, It's been getting worse year on year on year. And it's sort of like it hasn't we haven't noticed, if you like, in the in the public discourse. And as you say, the oil is continuing to flow. Right. So you're seeing extraordinary volatility based on anticipated changes. Now, that can go both ways. Right. So it it could be a headline that there's going to be an embargo that would send the prices shooting up higher or there could be a headline about india or indonesia or china building pipelines or taking extra deliveries or getting oil on discounts and then that would send the price back down again and so what you're seeing with the algos is a massive overreaction to the news in both direction and this volatility by the way is very bad for everybody right consumers don't benefit from this but the producers don't benefit from it either if you're bp or exxon mobil and you want to make investment decisions, it doesn't benefit you to have prices shifting $30 a day. So what is it then in terms of economics and why is this parasitic mechanism so dominant in our economies around the world and particularly when it comes to the most important commodities like oil and food? For example, here in the, you're in the UK where you have socialized medicine Uh, I use the S word, (laughs) which is poisonous over here, but it's very popular in the UK. Here in the United States, we have a completely parasitic operation that's controlled by middlemen, meaning insurance companies. They're an unnecessary layer between the patient and the caregiver. And yet that is a system we have, and we have the most expensive health care. Actually, it's more accurately described as sickness profit, but it's called healthcare system in the world where you have, it's the most expensive with the worst outcomes. So how did this happen? I mean, I know it's, it's an American political question, but it sort of, to my mind, relates to what our broader conversation is about, which is about parasitic middlemen. 
I think the great irony of this is this is what Milton Friedman, the great neoliberal economist, was trying to stop, right? So a part of when I was writing a book and I was trying to write about prices, I really wanted to try and understand not just what form of prices, but what were they was what was how they're supposed to operate. And so I ended up reading quite a lot of the historical literature um, around Friedman. And, and you know, Friedman was his sort of great antagonist is interest groups, right? He, the reason why he doesn't like states and state bureaucracies is because, I mean, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons that he cites over and over again is the way in which they'll get captured by interest groups, right? That, that, that is to say that highly motivated individuals will simply care more about an issue than anybody else, and then they will lobby harder to the government to get a special dispensation. That's why he um, uh, wanted to get rid of the Fed chair, Paul Vol Volcker. Paul Volcker's held up as this kind of great champion of neoliberalism uh, in, in these sort of intellectual histories. But uh, Frieden was, was, was against him at the time and was leading this campaign to get him replaced with a computer. And this is because he had a great distrust of the Federal Reserve. And he wrote this article in 1962 where he said that the Federal Reserve or independent central banks in general were dangerous because they were likely to get taken over by financial interests, i.e. bankers would go and work at the independent central bank and this independent central bank wouldn't be so independent anymore. It would reflect the interests of the uh, finance professionals inside it. And I think that's the great irony is that's exactly what's happened, right? Friedman's kind of, we may think we're living in this neoliberal world, but in fact, in some ways, the very kind of political and economic changes that he put into motion have actually, as you say, kind of produced a kind of parasitic or interest group driven culture. The only people that benefit from highly volatile commodity prices are an incredibly small number of hedge funds and banks that essentially either sell derivatives in this space, run algos, and of course the exchanges who make money off this as well. But nobody else benefits. Huge amounts of finance, other speculators, hedge funds who work on the more so-called fundamental side of the business don't benefit from this at all. They're very angry about the situation. And the same you could sort of argue for healthcare as well. Barack Obama during the his sort of, you know, push for Obamacare gave this speech where he defended the insurance companies and he said, well, we can't go to the insurance companies because they employed two million people and we can't fire two million people. That's almost precisely that kind of Milton Friedman nightmare of you've got this interest group who is sort of driving government policy. But what he couldn't understand was how the very deregulations and the, the 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 free market ideology that he was pushing would in fact enable these people because prices do not work as in his model with perfect competition you know with perfect information in the real world as the nobel prize winning economist joseph stiglitz has pointed out you know the invisible hand is invisible because it doesn't exist right these free market conditions that he he idolized are just simply a fairy tale well, Rupert Russell, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. And I've been speaking with Rupert Russell, who is in the UK, where he's a writer and filmmaker who has filmed in 20 countries and made two award-winning documentaries. His first feature documentary, Freedom for the Wolf, tells the story of the global crisis in democracy from the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong to the failure of the Arab Spring in Tunisia to the rise of Donald Trump in America. He is the author of the new book, Just Out, Price Wars, How the Commodities Markets Made Our Chaotic World. And he has an article at The Guardian, Unless We Act, Escalating Commodity Prices Will Cause a Decade of Global Turmoil. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining how the Ukraine crisis has disturbing echoes of the 1930s and the extent to which Putin could be fairly described as a fascist. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Christina Floria, who is a professor of history at Cornell University, who teaches courses on East European and Soviet history, World War II and interwar Europe, and her work examines the relationship between nationalism and empire, the importance of imperial legacies in modern European history, and the centrality of imperial competition to East European politics and societies. And she is the author of Crossroads of Empire, Revolutions and Encounters at the Frontiers of Europe, and has an article at CNN, Putin Knows That Controlling History Is the Key to Total Power. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christina Gloria. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us. And we know, of course, that Putin sold this war to the Russian people, and in particular to the Russian military, on the basis that Ukraine is a fascist country and that they're going after fascists. And in fact, the or do they're denazifying is actually the uh, term that they use. Uh, Ukrainians who lived under occupation of, uh, when Russia controlled towns around Kiev have reported that the Russian soldiers would kick the doors down and say, where are the Nazis or where are the Banderites, referring to the pro-Nazi Ukrainian leader in World War II. So um, this is a little ironic, isn't it? I mean, the word uh, or the derogative term that Ukrainians use for Russians is Russia. And now they've come up with a hybrid term, Rashist, which is uh, Russia and fascist joined together. So... They're both calling each other fascists. So who's right? <laughs> That's a great question. Thank you so much for asking it. Um, I think, I mean, this is indicative of how the word fascism has been used uh, very extensively, actually, over the past few years and really stretched to essentially mean anybody who opposes us. Um, in this case, I mean, I would say... First of all, the ways in which Putin and Russia is using this um, kind of indicates how much what Russia is doing now is still being justified in terms of uh, the Soviet Union's accomplishments in World War II. Um, I think Putin continues to refer to World War II and to the Soviet Union's contribution to bring down fascism, essentially as the key source of legitimacy. Uh, now for his own regime as well, although he didn't take part in, in that in that aspect specifically of Soviet history. Uh, that's very interesting because World War II up to this day, or rather the Soviet Union's role in World War II remains uh, one of the things that most Russians actually agree on, uh, or one of the most undisputed sources of legitimacy for Russian regimes, including Putin's. Uh, which is why I think he keeps harping on this uh, idea that Russia is involved in Ukraine because it's trying to combat fascism. Now, as for the Banderites right, that he's talking about and Ukraine's legacies of um, involvement right, with Nazism, I mean, there is a grain of truth in this in the sense that uh, Ukrainian nationalism developed this extremist strand in the interwar period um, especially in places like Poland and Romania, where Ukrainian minorities uh, had, you know, all of their rights were basically violated. Their schools were closed down. They were not allowed to speak their native languages. And out of this uh, situation in the interwar period emerged this new nationalist organization that called itself the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, OUN. Uh, and within it, there was this more radical wing led by Stepan Bandera, um, who moved very much in the direction of integral nationalism, meaning, uh, right, that ethnic Ukrainians only should be at the foundation of a future Ukrainian nation state. And um, other minorities, let's say, especially Poles and Jews, um, have no space, essentially, or have no place uh, in this future Ukraine. So all of this is very real. The problem is that Putin is kind of equating uh, present-day Ukraine or the current regime and his totally legitimate desire to maintain national sovereignty with something that happened in the 20s and that is by no means actually, uh, you know, like something that most people in Ukraine today would vote for or would approve of. In turn... Right. Several commentators, not just Ukrainians, but also commentators in the West have described Putin as fascist, which I also think is a bit deceptive. 
because, you know, as historians, I guess when we try to, when we draw these analogies or we think about connections between the past and the present, we also have to take into account differences in ideology, differences in context. And Putin, I mean, in my opinion, at least Putin's ideas do not really, do not really resemble interwar fascism in a meaningful way. What he's doing is a kind of mixture of conservative uh, utopia, basically, mixed with Russian nationalism, mixed with some kind of imperial nostalgia, all together uh, forming this really <laughs> toxic cocktail that I think, you know, actually just like dismissing everything as fascism would, in fact, um, would probably mean overlooking some of the unique aspects of what is going on here. Well, but if you go back to Aristotle, the distinctions are governments ruled by one person, by a few people, mm -hmm. and by many. So there's no question that this is a one-man operation. Mm -hmm. I mean, he does answer to, to certain power blocks, but he has absolute power. I mean, there are other superficial similarities with fascism. I mean, he has his own Hitler Youth-type organization called NASHI, which is, yeah. I find quite disturbing. But you wrote, wrote in Time magazine uh, just at the beginning of the uh, Russian invasion about how the crisis in Ukraine had disturbing echoes of the 1930s. And it did feel that way when I was watching both Macron and mm -hmm. German Chancellor Schultz go to Moscow, sit at the end of that long table, as <laughs> almost like supplicants. And it, it did have a whiff of Chamberlain sitting down mm -hmm with Hitler and my understanding from history and by the way there's a fairly good movie I saw recently about it I don't know I don't know whether you've seen it Christina but dramatized the meeting between Hitler and Chamberlain my sense is that Chamberlain was this sort of out of this tradition of gentleman's diplomacy and he was a, he was a sort of English gentleman and he simply did yeah. not have the cultural background or the or the experience of dealing with a gangster and yeah. is that something that's happening here with Putin? Because he's been involved with gangsters all of his professional life, in both <laughs> as a spy and as a politician. And we've never had this situation in geopolitics before. We have the combination of national security and organized crime, nuclear weapons and the mafia. And now you have mm -hmm. this guy who acts and behaves like a gangster, <laughs> making nuclear threats. So... Mm -hmm. I wonder whether that is the same problem that we have today, at least our diplomats and our European leaders have, in not recognizing who they're dealing with, as Chamberlain seemed to have in dealing with Hitler, thinking his word oh. meant something. Right, absolutely. I actually completely agree with that. So this is exactly what I was, I think, what I was trying to suggest in that article that... Um, the similarities or the echoes that I saw were not necessarily right. Uh, I wasn't trying to argue that, well, Putin is kind of like Hitler returned in a new uh, new version of him. But what they do have in common is both, or uh, the, the parallels between these situations, both in terms of the context and also, as you mentioned, in terms of what they reveal about how the Western world deals with elements like Putin, who ultimately do not subscribe to Western values or what we consider to be Western values. And I think this is actually one of the greatest sources of misunderstanding about the regime. And one that I, I'm actually surprised by how many people, in fact, fail to see this. You know, they kind of apply, uh, you know, the tools of international relations or whatever else they have learned <laughs> that applies mostly to Western regimes and expect an authoritarian regime uh, led by someone like Putin, who in fact might not have the same kinds of priorities or concerns that a Western democratic leader would, um, you know, they let that kind of inform um, the policies that they think should be pursued towards Russia. And I think that's where they're wrong. And um, I mean, that, that happened both in the 30s, right? And I see a similarity now, although, I mean, there are some encouraging signs now, at least uh, lately with Germany's, uh, you know, decision to revise its policy towards Russia and so on. Um, but I think you're absolutely right about that. There's a huge gap between 
um, authoritarian leaders and then uh, leaders of, of democratic of the democratic world who basically most of the time have a really uh, have real difficulty understanding what makes those regimes tick which is why I think there's a major uh, I wouldn't put it a, not a major communication problem but kind of disconnect or clash of expectations that is in it keeps informing you know what is happening now in Ukraine I completely agree with that yeah and again, I'm speaking with Christina Floria, who's a professor of history at Cornell University, who teaches courses on East European and Soviet history, World War II and interwar Europe, and her work examines the relationship between nationalism and empire, the importance of imperial legacies in modern European history, and the centrality of imperial competition to East European politics and societies. And she's the author of Crossroads of Empire, Revolutions and Encounters at the Frontiers of Europe. And she has an article at CNN, Putin knows that controlling history is the key to total power. So in the light of what we're talking about, there is a, some historical analogies here, it would seem to me, that when, of course, you know, Hitler and Stalin had the famous pact, the Ribbentrop-Molotov uh, pact, mm-hmm. um, which led the way into World War II. The, the Russians invaded Poland together with Germany. Uh, with Hitler, then when Hitler reneged on Stalin and invaded the Soviet Union, apparently Stalin was just completely blindsided mm-hmm. and went on a bender. He was drunk for weeks, or at least a week, <laughs> and they couldn't do anything. And he'd already purged the the Soviet army of its generals. So, you know, you have this dictator drunk incapable of dealing with this because he got his buddy Hitler reneged on him and he couldn't handle it apparently and of course the entire Soviet army was collapsing uh, at the time a similar thing apparently happened with Putin where you have a situation where you have just the the one person in charge mm-hmm. and I recall of course that the German Chancellor, who unfortunately we don't have anymore because she was very effective, I think, uh, Angela Merkel, she would call Putin regularly on the phone, not for any specific purpose, but to just, because she spoke Russian, just to let him know what was happening in the real world because she knew he was getting bad advice and was surrounded by sycophants. Well, the same thing apparently, you know, going back to Stalin's response to Hitler's invasion, when Putin then ordered the troops into Ukraine. He thought that they would literally be greeted by these, uh, you know, these so-called oppressed Russian-speaking Ukrainians would throw flowers on the tanks and would treat them as liberators. And when this didn't happen in Kharkiv, which is very close to the Russian border and is a Russian-speaking mm-hmm. city, he apparently went absolutely nuts, Putin. And he's not a a drunk, but (laughs) he apparently just completely went insane. So are those analogies in any way telling? Oh, absolutely. And I was just thinking now, actually, I mean, there there are even more analogies than that. But I think they, they all point to this fundamental problem that authoritarian regimes face, or rather these regimes which end up with the one man rule or a despot in charge which is that um, they have this kind of uh, self-perpetuating quality to them in which only those who already agree with the one man in charge are allowed to speak. And so the kind of information that actually gets to the top is extremely limited and facilitates the development of completely delusional view of the world. And I think this is exactly what happened here. And this is not the only instance. And I don't know how... Um, relevant this analogy is, but all throughout this war, I kept thinking about another scenario where um, Nazi Germany, for example, invaded Ukraine in World War II. And a lot of the Ukrainian population that had been subjected to Stalinism before, to had been forced into collective farms, had experienced extraordinary violence, including the, you know, the Great Famine, um, and so on. All of these people had hoped that uh, if the Wehrmacht comes in, right, if the Germans come in, surely they're going to undo all of these things and, you know, they will be saved from Stalinism. And so a lot of them actually did show up with flowers 
and welcomed the German tanks in. But guess what? Hitler could not care less uh, right, about their aspirations or about the fact that in, you know, the population there was actually pretty positively disposed towards the uh, German military. Because the only information he had, the only view he had of the world was based on his own delusions. And he would not actually listen right, to anybody. And there were other members of the uh, you know, high-ranking uh, members of the Nazi party and so on, people who thought that uh, Germany could not actually have a successful occupation in Eastern Europe unless it took into account uh, the popular moods or the wishes of different national groups, such as Ukrainians. And the occupation as a result, I mean, some parts of occupied Ukraine were experienced tremendous violence, as a result of uh, Nazi, the Nazis' behavior, more and more people actually joined the partisans, right, and the Soviets. Many who had hated the Soviet regime now were thinking about it as this wonderful thing that they had lost by comparison with what they experienced under Nazis. So I think, right, it was it. It was a racism that came to play, right? He not only, yeah. of course, hated the Jews, but he also looked down on the Slavs. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for him, they're all subhuman, untermenschen, right? And so it was completely pointless. I mean, in so many places in Ukraine, when the uh, the Nazi troops came in, they uh, banned Ukrainian language newspapers. They no longer showed movies in the cinemas, because why would a subhuman need to go to the cinema? All of these things, the Soviets had been clever enough for it not to suppress. And they knew how to use, actually, to their advantage. And so now, after this Nazi occupation, a lot of people were now favorably disposed towards the Soviets who hadn't been before. So all of this is basically to say that um, sometimes massive mistakes are made because of these people in power, essentially, or people who have pretty much unlimited power, not having alternative sources of information, and then having the freedom to just go off into their own world not really taking into account, you know, any realities, um, which really comes to bite them in the back later, right? When it turns out that all of those were just illusions. Um, I think something similar is happening now. Just to touch on, uh, Christina, on your article at uh, CNN, uh, Putin knows that controlling history is a key to total mm -hmm. power. Putin, of course, he hates Lenin, but I think he loved Stalin, and he certainly seemed to be modeling himself on Stalin. And he did shut down Memoriam, uh, which was the yeah. NGO that was dealing with the truth about what Stalin did with murdering so many of his own citizens and imprisoning so many. That I find really disturbing more than anything in a way. you know. And it goes back to the idea, I don't know who said it, but somebody said that he who controls the past controls the future. So is that what's happening with Putin? He's trying to sanitize the past? Yeah, I mean, the impression that I get from based on what I've been reading and hearing is Putin is actually considering or he thinks of himself as a historian. It, he seems to have spent a good deal of the pandemic years actually collecting archival documents and then looking through them and, you know, taking himself very seriously, right, his uh, interpretive uh, skills, and coming up with these justifications that are really rooted in history, but a history that is interpreted, you know, very strangely. I mean, it, it consists of just selective episodes put together, you know, to fit this narrative that he has already decided on, which is that Ukraine is not a nation, or that um, the Ukrainian state you know, does not deserve to be sovereign. As for um, what you mentioned, right, Memorial and so on, I think they're part of this larger process which Putin is participating in, and he's not the only one to do that. You know, the first thing that one notices while working in archives in Ukraine and all of Eastern Europe, as a matter of fact, is this happened over and over and over again with every change in regime, you see similar attempts basically at rewriting the past. What becomes really dangerous is when those materials that these new stories are based on are actually physically destroyed. Um, I mean, I would see very in the area that I've been working on, I would see, for example, how in the interwar period, Romanians come in 
and then take up bits and pieces of that region's past and put them together into a new story to demonstrate that this area really was Romanian from the dawn of time, from the very beginnings. Other parts of that history get forgotten or left behind. But the fact that they're still there somewhere in these archives or that they can be reached enables me then or other people right decades later to still salvage some of those other experiences and to question those stories. The problem with, uh, you know, not just closing things down, but actually destroying a lot of these sites is, I mean, what really worries me is that a lot of those experiences would just vanish. Um, And this is something that has happened before. And what makes it truly tragic is that a lot of them survived, you know, things like World War II or, um, you know, really devastating attacks before. And it would be really horrible, right, if we were to lose them now. Um, but as to the larger question, uh, you know, what you mentioned at the beginning about how he hates Stalin, he loves, uh, sorry, he hates Lenin, right, and loves Stalin. Um, I think this is actually uh, connected to a larger misunderstanding that I think a lot of people have about what Putin is trying to do or the kind of uh, remaking of history that he's engaging in. Um, he's not really trying to restore the Soviet narrative necessarily or the Soviet space. I don't think that's the case. As you rightly pointed out, he thinks Lenin was essentially an idiot for giving all these different nationalities um, the right to speak their own languages for, in fact, even, you know, sometimes creating nationalities out of people who didn't even think of themselves that way to be endless. Um, that's not what he is uh, really interested in. What he's really interested in seems to be this really distant past uh, in which Russia uh, and arguably was one with Ukraine and Belarusia, and it was this large, great space. And he's basically playing with archival documents and with uh, records and with pieces of memory, uh, denying access to whatever does not fit this narrative and then putting forward others that justify it. Well, Christina Floria, I thank you for joining us here today and um, giving us a, a little tutorial on the history that, uh, unfortunately, Vladimir Putin is misinterpreting. And I don't know that he's going to go down in history as a particularly successful leader. Um, no, let's hope not. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, Ian. It was a real pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Christina Floria, who's a professor of history at Cornell University, who teaches courses on East European and Soviet history, World War II and interwar Europe. Her work examines the relationship between nationalism and empire, the importance of imperial legacies in modern European history, and the centrality of imperial competition to East European politics and societies. And she's the author of Crossroads of Empire, Revolutions and Encounters at the Frontiers of Europe. And she has an article at CNN, Putin Knows That Controlling History Is the Key to Total Power. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice Singing something to 
One more life goes on. 